James, there is a lot to worry about when you're planning a wedding. There are logistics that have to do with clothes, with flowers, with food, with all of those things. And one thing you don't want to have to worry about is your feminine care. And that's where Lola comes in. Lola is a female-founded company offering a line of organic cotton tampons, pads, and liners. They started their company with a simple and seemingly obvious idea. Women shouldn't have to compromise when it comes to feminine care products. I love that it's been founded by women for women. They offer pads and liners as well as non-applicator tampons for those looking for a more environmentally friendly option. Lola's products are 100% organic cotton with no added chemicals, fragrances, synthetics or dyes and they make your month a little bit easier. Their subscription is fully customizable so you can choose your mix of products, your perfect mix of absorbency, your number of boxes and frequency of delivery. And James, let me tell you, as a woman who menstruates and as a woman who uses Lola, Lola's totally changed my life. I'm not running off in the middle of the night to the corner store to get feminine care because this is coming straight to my door. And when Megan has Lola, she won't have to do that either. She's not going to have to leave Kensington to go off on the main street and try and find some tampons in the middle of the night. And because we love you, we've sorted 40% off your first order. Visit mylola.com and enter promo code MARRY when you subscribe. That's promo code MARRY at mylola.com for 40% off your first order. The following podcast contains explicit language. They told us to go to the centre of Marja to check things out. Everyone knows that the enemy are in and around that area. We're going to go in and kind of flush them out. You don't want to be the one getting hit first, because someone's going to. They're going to target someone's vehicle. That's how ambushes generally work. My biggest fear was to be shot in the face, and I don't know why. I just I don't want to be shot in the face. I remember Kev saying, you know, what do you think it's going to be, an IED or small arms, almost like jokingly. And then all of a sudden, it's like, hell opened up. It was almost like a textbook, L-shaped style of ambush. And I don't know whether this is madness or just a, a soldier's reaction. So I obviously then popped up through the hatch and saw the Taliban insurgent and just engaged and just up and there he was. So I stopped firing when he dropped. He was doing his job, just like I was doing mine. Just on that day, you know, I was the one who got lucky. I used to be a soldier. Now I'm a stand-up comedian by trade. I'm okay at it, I'm not famous by any means, but I get paid to do it. So I guess that's what I'm known for, making people laugh. But. What if that's not what I was known for? What if, as a stand-up comedian, the only thing people knew about me was the one time I made a baby cry? Which I've done. Chantel Taylor was a medic in the British Army, and a damn good one at that. For the lads that I supported, I'm known as their company medic, so that's, and that's obviously extremely important to me. But that's not what you're known for. No, that's, I know. You know, that's not the, the badge that you have... Um, you know, associated yeah. with your name. So tell me about what you are known for. 
historically, you know, I became known as, as the first um, the first British female to to kill an, an enemy combatant in a you know in a, in a combat um, situation. This is Battle Scars, and I'm Tom Tran. I served in the U.S. Army, deployed to Iraq, and took a sniper's bullet to the back of my head my fourth day in country. It's been over a decade since that gunfight, and I've told that story hundreds of times. There's still things about my life in combat that I haven't shared with anyone. And in this show, I talk to other veterans of our recent wars, and maybe put into words some of those things that we've never said about those experiences. Saturday night, I'm sure the last thing you want to be doing is talking to some some comedian in Los Angeles. <laughs> you should be out. That's the, that's the first thing I want to be doing. Chantel was kind enough to take the train from Devon in southwest England into London so we could do this episode. There was a lot of coordinating to make this happen, but it was totally worth it. I always love talking to medics because it's because of the duality of your job. I mean, it's literally in the name combat medic it's like saying responsible teenager yeah it is isn't it people sometimes forget the word combat comes before medic Mm -hmm. so then they're all they're always surprised when they hear the story of what happened in in my scenario that it wasn't a surprise to me that i could end up in that scenario you know it was kind of like well i'm a combat medic i always sort of vowed never to be a burden on the blokes i was supporting which made a huge a huge difference to me making sure that they knew that I was never just a bum on a seat, you know, never just sort of waiting for someone to always look after me, that I was quite happy to be a part of things. Right, because so many people just hear the word medic. And yeah, even they like, do. I mean, you know, we would joke around, if, even if someone like fell or tripped, you'd always just scream, medic! But yeah. <laughs> you forget the word combat is before that. Why did you pick that that MOS? Why did you decide to do that um, job? Do you know, when I initially um, joined up, I was a little bit older, so I was like, I was 22, my brother was in the infantry and I thought, well, he seemed to be doing a bit, bit of travelling. And again, quite an irresponsible decision. I'm like, yeah, that's, that seems cool. All right. So, so I go to the Army Careers Office. Wait, 22-year-old the... making an irresponsible decision? Yeah, I can't. I, know. I can't even fathom that. <laughs> so I do, the, I do the initial testing and I get this big long list of jobs that I can take. And I'm looking down them. And again, this is going to sound really, really bad. That was the only um, MOS, as you call it, or we call it CEG, that had the word combat in it. I thought, oh, well, that's, that seems cool. Yeah, I don't think things happen by accident. I saw it and, and that seemed like the best option for me. But it wasn't because I was interested in medicine at that time. Okay. Well, as a former recruiter, I can tell you that a <laughs> lot of people pick jobs in the military for way less <laughs> brave reasons than oh the word combat's in it like i've seen people like hey where are the most girls stationed like oh, yeah fort sam yeah. houston so um <laughs> tell me about your deployments how many how many times did you deploy my first deployment was to kosovo and that was i, I joined in 98 and then 99 the end of 99 i was in kosovo for my first deployment as a like i was a junior medic then you know i helped the canadians out with um, sorting through the sort of mass graves so then from kosovo I went to Sierra Leone and spent did a, a tour there, which I must say, I suppose, that even inclusive of my tours of Afghanistan and Iraq, um, I think that was my favourite because it was really different. You know, I'd never operated in jungle conditions and it was just, it was such, from a medical perspective, it was it was a really interesting tour. And I, and I kind of fell in love with that, that country because it was such a beautiful place. 
but just and but from the other side, I I kind of it was another first look at how sort of hideous people can be to people. Hmm. You see people with hacked off limbs. It was done in a very crude way. People were just hacking each other to bits, and it it was just unfortunately or fortunately, I don't know what because it prepared me for something. But I did a lot with um, the child combatants. And you know the the youngest child combatant that I, that I had to deal with was seven, and this this kid you know he'd he'd been forced to kill his parents and you know and, and under obviously the influence of drugs and all and you just and I just thought how's this kid gonna mend how are these kids gonna a get over what they did or or even to, you know start to have a, like a normal life and and that's the beauty of someone like Sierra Leone is that I've never seen a resilience in people that they go through this utter turmoil and trauma. Yet they still uh, like find a reason to smile, and, and and a lot of them they have this this faith, and it gets them through. And it, I mean, it's, it's it's something to behold. So, from a I guess training standpoint, you had the optimal level of like deployments. You went Kosovo, which was not a full out combat situation, yeah. to a Sierra Leone, then to Iraq and Afghanistan. So, do you think that better prepared you than yeah. than you may have if you've just gone from? say medical school right into the fire yeah definitely by the time i'd uh, my like my final tours of afghanistan it was like um and this isn't to sound i, I felt completely ready you know mm. i wasn't phased by any of it like tactically and medically i was at, i'd say i was at my peak mm-hmm. for when when it and, and and in some ways that was the best way that it happened because that's when it really counted Chantelle's years of preparation seemed all to be leading up to her final tour. Her troop went to Marja, an agricultural town in southern Afghanistan. The area is known for its poppy, so it was extremely important for the Taliban and warlords to keep that area secure. Chantelle was part of a patrol unit driving around that area. The day unfolded, we, we took a bit of mortar fire and we were in a desert leaguer. And then, as like every command does, you know, they told us to go into the center of Marja to check things out. <laughs> go right in the middle, right there. Yeah, get yourselves right in there. And um, and bearing in mind at the time, I was I was supporting a Scottish um, company. Yeah, all, all of my guys were Scots, and they're crazy, aren't they? But in the best sense of the word. How how crazy? I've never worked with the Scots. Tell me about them. Have you ever seen the film Train Spotting? I have. <laughs> I love it so it's, much. It's, it's their humor, you know. They have this. Um, they could be having the worst day of their life, and there's just always an element of humor. But most soldiers do that, but they just take it to the next level. So then we get. So we end up. Our patrol starts moving off, and we come across. We do the normal drills of checking vulnerable points for IEDs, and we, everyone knows that the enemy are in and around that area because we've spotted. We've you've seen um, fighting age males and all these different sort of what we call atmospherics that tell us that there are enemy in the area. You're talking about the atmospherics of that day, and, and I know exactly what you mean. Like for instance, I, I remember a day that I had to be in Baghdad picking up um, some equipment because I was in charge of rebuilding a radio station because it's part of what I do as a civilian. Uh, and it was literally just me and my interpreter in downtown Baghdad, middle of the day, shopping district in a Humvee. And I was looking around for just what you're talking about, those atmospherics of like, okay, everybody's shopping. This is normal. People are walking around. Nobody's staring at me. No one's fleeing. They're still women and children. They're not afraid to be within five feet of me, like walking past me. What, what were the conditions like the day 
you were on that patrol? It was lunchtime, so it was sort of midday between 12 and 12.30. Like, as we were entering the, the, the sort of district centre, you could see, like, food was cooking. So there was that kind of, it was at lunchtime, you could, and I could smell different things, you could smell bread. Again, there's normal atmospherics of people going about their daily business. And then it was almost like it was like an instantaneous. It was it, it could have been as if you just dropped a coin on the floor that all of a sudden it went from being normal to, you know, villagers started to move very quickly out of their homes and basically out of the village. So and then it, that went from they were running not towards us, they were running away. So it was like, right, hang on. And that's when Kev and I were looking at looking between looking at each other and looking back out. It was like, right, this we're going to get hit. And I always say this, and this, do you know, this happens regardless of what, I'm, whether I'm giving an after dinner talk or whether I'm in the middle of a contact or I've, I've just got a casualty. And I, I get that dry mouth. I don't know whether it's it's waiting for that adrenaline shift, but I get dry, I get um, sweaty palms. But yeah, I remember just as soon as that adrenaline shift happened, and it was a, a marked feeling of being going from, you know, very shaky legs, very. I always think the anticipation is far worse than the actual mm. action. You see all the pieces of this possible yeah. fight starting to, to fall into place. But you just don't know where it's coming from. And this is quite a selfish thing to say, but I'm, and I know everyone else felt like it. You don't, you don't want to be the one getting hit first because someone's mm. going to. They're going to target someone's vehicle. That's how ambushes generally work. Mm. And then it was a case of, I remember Kev, who was my sort of battle, battle partner on, on, on the vehicle with me, saying, you know, what do you think it's going to be, an IED or small arms? Almost like jokingly. I can't really remember what I muffled back, but I think it was like probably small arms, just the usual sort of crap you sort of chat right. just to take your mind off what's happening. That gallows humor of like, yeah, let's, yeah. let's acknowledge this. Yeah, kind of, but, but pretend really it's not know. happening. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> deny, deny, deny. Yeah. And then, yeah, so, um, and then all of a sudden it's like hell opened up. So we had uh, we were contacted from the left and the rear. So it was almost like a textbook L-shaped style of ambush. Mm-hmm. And I remember like my instant reaction at the time, and, and as as it is with an ambush, is you know initially take cover, dip down super right. quick into into our vehicle. But our vehicle couldn't really withstand um, anything larger than a five five six was going to get through. Right. You know, it was going to penetrate the armor on our vehicle. Like looking up at the, at the top of where we were, we'd obviously just had our heads. You could see sort of um, rounds pinging past our communications to, um, little mass, and, and you could just—it was so such a such an interesting thing to look at because I couldn't even really see what they were. I it just remind I could hear the zip, but you couldn't really. For some reason, I could tell that they were coming from my side, and that's the only reason that I could tell, just because mm-hmm. from looking at the the way the the mask kept sort of flicking, and then um, and I don't know whether this is madness or just an actual just a, a soldier's reaction. So I obviously then popped up through the hatch mm-hmm. and saw the um, the Taliban insurgent and just engaged. You know, and, it was, and I don't, I'm not saying that flippantly. It was just a, a, a sort right. of instant, yeah, a reaction, and just up and there there he was. I stopped firing when he dropped because it took seven rounds. Sometimes the fog of war doesn't let you see the immensity of what you're doing in the moment. Hell, what am I talking about? Sometimes, most of the time, when the bullets are flying, you're just trying to get through that moment before you realize what had just happened. The day I was shot in Iraq, my team finished that mission, then ran another mission before we even got me to a hospital. Chantel didn't have time to really grasp what she'd done, and she had to go from combat back to medic 
at the flip of a switch. The reason I moved on so quickly from it was because we took a casualty. Chucky, who was manning the 50 cal in the rear vehicle, had taken a round to the abdomen. So the OC shouts through the back door to me, we got a casualty in the rear vehicle. So we move off, a hasty move off. Um, we find like an open area that we could potentially land a schnook in. Um, the OC sends up the company snipers. They start doing their bit. The Apaches then, you know, picking off targets. And I think, I think the count was somewhere between, they killed up between 10 and 20 insurgents that day. And then obviously Chucky was, he was airborne within 30, I'd say 30 minutes. So, and that, that sort of shows the time scale of we, we'd taken this, this ambush and then our casualty was lifted. And for, fortunately for us, I mean, it, we were extremely fortunate that day to just take one casualty. The military is really, really good at teaching soldiers how to fight, how to kill, how to survive. It is, however, bad at teaching us how to come down from the adrenaline rush of those situations. To my knowledge, we never had a post-gunfight skill set class. No one ever told us how to relieve the pressure that builds up from this profession of arms. We're left to figure that out ourselves. But we all had our thing. Some guys I deployed with played video games. Some guys worked out. I, personally, listened to an album by the Irish pop rock group The Chorus. It was an album that put me in my happy place. Don't judge me. Chantelle had her own rituals that she used that day after the ambush. Na- nature helps me. So I used, to, I used to like to watch the, you know, the sun going down and just and that, that I'd either reflect on, on home. I thought about that day and I, I remember thinking... Like previous to that, I'd been on some really, really, really hard courses in the military. And I remember coming coming away from one of those courses with like 100 plus bruises. And again, I'm not, you know, I grew up with three brothers, so I'm not like a, a, I'm used to getting hit. Mm. You've taken the punches. (laughs) But yeah, and it's it's not maybe like super tough, but I'm used to that kind of rough and tumble. It's all good. Mm -hmm. And I, I remember just thinking all of those hours of where I've just, I wondered what I was doing there and why I was doing it to myself. They saved my life, and and then I remember the time that I spent, you know, being taught how to use the machine guns, being taught all these different things, and taking the time to go and learn this stuff. It mm-hmm. it kind of paid off as a, as a soldier. And Kev next to me was still alive. The OC was still alive. There was an interpreter in the back. He wasn't hurt. The driver in my vehicle. So. It didn't mean that I'd saved their lives indirectly, but I thought, well, if I had anything to do with that, then I could kind of be at peace with that. I'd, you know, I'd done the right thing. Did you ever think you'd have to uh, be in that position as a soldier first before being a medic, where you would have to uh, take a life? When I, when I initially joined, I didn't even think I'd go to war. <laughs> <laughs> that soon changed. Yeah, it's peacetime. Um, you joined in '98. <laughs> I know exactly. I did the same thing. Clinton was the president. I was like, we're good. It was lovely. It was lo- what a lovely time. Yes, yeah. it was. Um, but then it was. It wasn't a shock. I didn't. I didn't feel like. I wasn't shocked that it was happening. Mm-hmm. Did you ever find out who who you wound up killing, or was it just you know Taliban? And no, no. Yeah, it, was, it, was, it was. Yeah, I didn't. I didn't know. And 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 often I, I did think about that because I thought, 
again, when you get to the point of when you actually do, because we all overanalyze things and, and want to know all those questions or all the answers to the questions. But a lot of a lot of the time I used to be concerned that you'd have a lot of guys that were just farmers protecting the crops mm. that were then hired by the Taliban, you know, and, I, and then so I kind of had to, in my head, you know, just sort of level that up and think, you know, what what if it was just someone who's just paid ten dollars a day? Yeah. But then I guess you know he was firing at me. So then, I, but I did think about it. I won't, you know, is it, that was something that did cross my mind that whether he was just a was he a paid fighter or was like, he just somebody yeah. you know trying to protect his, his yeah. poppy crops? Yeah, exactly. How did it make you feel not knowing if you know this was? someone who really wanted yeah. to do harm to you or just I don't know because I, I sort of I tried to treat treat things like that with re, you know the respect it deserves that he he was doing his job he thought he was doing his job just like I was doing mine just on that day you know I, I was the one who got lucky and I and obviously I'm glad about because because I, I look back at my life and, and my parents had already lost a son um, in an incident back in the UK I had this thing all the way through my tours, actually, since 2002, that if something were to happen to me, I was quite happy that I would see my brother again. But then I didn't want to put my parents through the heartache of losing another child. So, you know, I don't know whether that made me sort of mentally determined and kind of strong to survive the battlefield. Not that you have much, too much of a choice in the matter, because there are some guys out there that, you know, do the bravest of things and still unfortunately have to pay the ultimate price. You know, we don't we don't see many VC winners or many Medal of Honor winners that live mm-hmm. because of the you know the the extraordinary yeah. feats they have to go through. Exactly, yeah. When I first started dating my wife, uh, I remember telling her, "Hey, if people ever ask you what I did, just tell them I was a communication sergeant, and that's it. It's not a lie. It's the truth. But they don't need to know anymore, and I don't need or want to explain anything else because." There is that inevitable question, regardless of your MOS or your job or whatever you did while you were in the military. If yeah. you go to war, people are going to come home and ask that one question. And I don't ever think that they intend for it to come out the way it does. And my answer was always, and this is the God's honest truth, um, I put rounds down range when they were coming at me. Where those rounds went, I do not know. That is between God and those bullets. Yeah. Um, all I know is that I was trying to get home. I was trying to get my soldiers home. You know, so whenever people ask me that question, and you know what question I mean. It's horrible. It's a horrible question, isn't it? Yeah, because I, part of me is like, I got to honest God's truth. I don't know. Yeah. Like I've been part of so many engagements and I put a lot of rounds down range. Yeah. And, and where they ended, all I know is that I'm here the soldiers I was with are home. How did you, I mean, first of all, how did you find out you were the first British woman to kill an insurgent in Afghanistan? How did you find out? Um, but it was through the MOD. Basically, uh, I'd started writing, I just started to write, and I wasn't writing a book at the time because I didn't tell any of my family. I didn't tell, I didn't really speak to my parents about what had gone on, didn't talk about casualties, didn't really. I sort of kept my own counsel on things like that. I mean, the guys in my unit, they knew. So so I wrote the basic outline of what had gone on in Afghanistan and, and sent it to my mum and said, you know, this is what had gone on. And she'd commented that it would it looked like it would make a really good book. So I was like, all right. So I just thought I'd start writing and just and it took it from there. And then it had to go through the MOD for clearance. 
the worst thing about it was I then moved from Afghanistan to Baghdad and I was um, the like primary protection officer at the time for the Australian ambassador to Iraq. And then the story broke that I was the first woman. So then I'm like, shit, I'm in, the, you know, I'm in Baghdad and this story's breaking. <laughs> but luckily, my appearance changes quite a lot. So that's OK. That's, you know, people wouldn't have ever known who, who I was. But yeah, so it was, a, it was an interesting time. But no one, I don't know what, what it is, whether they're em- embarrassed, but no one's really ever asked me, apart from officially, like something like this to actually talk about it, because I, I wouldn't. I'd, I'd be affronted if someone, if someone socially said to me, mm-hmm. I'd, I'd Unless it was with like other so- other former soldiers, or we were chatting, and it was like relevant to what we were talking, I don't know. I'd, I'd feel really uh, like affronted if someone were to ask that. Yeah, you don't want to be at a party and yeah, that I'd just be like, comes yeah. up. Yeah, especially if, they, if especially if they hadn't served, I'd probably get quite offended. You know, the, even the casualties that I've treated and, and people that that we've lost, I'd, there's something quite sacred about the battlefield that I, you know. There's a a certain honor, isn't there? I mean, you've saved literally dozens of lives. And that's the thing, again, you wanted to be remembered for. And the the people you saved obviously remembered you. But now you're known for uh, for the exact opposite. Do you think about that every day? How do you how do you live with how do you deal with that? I guess the stuff that I've chosen to do, um, like since leaving the military, I do quite a lot with veterans charities and I'm part of the Global Recon podcast. We get people to talk about stuff that they've done. And this is going to probably sound like the corniest thing in the world. But I always find that the minute that it becomes less about me and about someone else, that helps me. So then and it it kind of um, Mm -hmm. and it puts it into perspective that. Although, you know, I, I am a medic and that was my, my job that I'm really happy to be known for. I don't feel so bad because I'd, I'd rather it was someone like me who kind of, who takes it as seriously as I do, then it's not glamorised. You know, I will, I'll never glamorise that, that moment in time because it's, um, it's, in some ways it's kind of helped, especially in the units that, that I was part of, it's helped to bring medics into mm-hmm. a, a place where, they do realise that the co- the combat comes first. You know, I'd love to think that if, if there was ever a legacy to be had, is that even from the guys from, you know, Mogadishu and stuff, the way that they change combat medicine, I'd like to think that I, potentially I could be part of changing it for the better where people were more tactically aware. Because they've mm-hmm. seen that they may have to, like, one day um, kill, you know, kill in combat. If it inspires somebody to to do the same and to, 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 to not be a statistic and not end up, you know, dying because they were, they were too concerned with, you know, other stuff, then um, I could live with that. A stand-up comedian friend of mine came out to L.A. once to visit and he uh, crashed at my apartment. We, we tried to make time to hang out while he was in town, but when we were trying to lock down schedules... I was like, well, I'm doing stand-up this night, and my band is practicing this day, and I'm working on a movie this day. And he said to me, pick one thing. He said, just be one thing. And I said, why? Why would I let myself be defined by any one thing that I do or have done? We're all complex. We're layered. Yes, I was a soldier and a leader. But I'm also all the other things that I love and enjoy, just like you are. I'm a brother, a son, a husband, 
a hockey fan, a musician, a comedian, a food lover, a nerd, a comic book fan. I'm all of those things, just like you are all of the things that make you. The entire world tries to judge you, or I, by the one or two things that they see or hear on the internet. So why would I do that to myself? We're not all just one thing that we're known for. Chantel wasn't just that day and that firefight. She was years and years of training, years and years of saving lives before that moment. She's complex. We as veterans, so often, we, we leave the military and we have a difficult time defining who we are once we get out. Because for 24-7, for years and sometimes decades, that is who we are. And when we leave the military, we try to hold on to that thing that defined us because it's what we know and what makes us feel safe. And then we let the world define us by that single thing that we did. Don't do that to yourself. Don't let the world do it to you. And certainly don't help them. Be proud of your service, but be proud of all the things that you are. Don't be a single moment or time in your life. Because you're not a single moment. You're not one thing. You are a compilation of the years and experiences and all the things that you've done in your life to this moment, that is who you are. Battle Scars is a Panoply podcast produced by Ryan Dilley, Shara Morris, and A.C. Valdez. Our theme music is composed by Danielle Dante. The artwork by Jesse Brown. Special thanks to Andy Bowers, Panoply's Chief Content Officer. I'm your host, Tom Tran. If you like the show, review us or rate us or just tell someone about us. And if you didn't enjoy it, then why are you still listening right now? <laughs>